If you are suffering from spiritual boredom or a lack of spiritual ambition, if you have an unusual attraction to the world or an addiction to an impure behavior, if you're overly fascinated with um, your stocks and your teams and your flower beds and paralyzed by worry, grief, and bitterness, your greatest need today is to experience the joy of being terrified by God. If you ask the prophet Isaiah what was the turning point in his life, he will tell you it was the day that God frightened him, not to death, but frightened him to life. It was the most beautiful and fulfilling and liberating day of his life, but it was also the most frightening day of his life when he saw God for who he was. Up until that moment, Isaiah had approached God with, with his own imagination. God was so containable and so manlike that he was boring and he was ineffective, irrelevant. But on that day when he saw the majesty and holiness of God, everything changed because he saw what infinite beauty and fierce loving holiness looks like. I don't normally read a whole passage to you before I teach it, but just in case my teaching uh, is an error and I miss something, this is enough just for you to see it live and in person in one time. Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. If you have never been in church, this is your first time ever to hear a Bible passage read, then without any experience and any pre-knowledge, you know what you just saw, a man met God, and it was a rather beautiful experience. The only thing that you don't know from reading this passage is all of the particulars that were going on around him that produced within him a heightened sense of anxiety and lostness that caused this meeting to be so important for him. hate to read everything to you, but I feel like if I just say it, you might, it might go too fast. There were about five things going on in that day that you'll understand why this encounter with God was so important. His country is politically and spiritually unstable. They need a courageous voice to call them back to the true God. Isaiah was the prophet who was supposed to be that voice. But the God of culture had become the controlling influence in his life. Therefore, he had no vision of the living God to share with his dying world. And that will be the principle every time. A prophet with a sinful heart will be a prophet with a silent tongue. Isaiah 
alludes to what was happening in the country simply by the dating of this particular event. He said it happened with the time of transition and rulers. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was quite a, quite a man, quite a leader. If you want to read about his life, you can go to 2 Chronicles 26, but get ready for a long read. The guy served 13 terms as president. 52 years. He started serving when he was 16. And you could do the math. Under his leadership, the army flourished and it became the strongest military as it had been since the time of King David. The economy surged because, soared because he had dug irrigation ditches that caused new farming techniques to be developed throughout the land. He was a masterful leader. Um, the ending of his life was not good. 52 years he reigned, but the final 10 years of his life, you've probably heard it before, most great men die 10 years too late. <laughs> that is something in the final years of their reign smears the rest. Isaiah, I mean for Uzziah, he entered the temple and allowed himself privileges that were normally only given to priests, and as a result, God laid upon him the disease of leprosy, and he spent the final 10 years of his life quarantined in a house. So when Isaiah talks about, when Isaiah was in the temple that day praying, his heart was filled with all of these emotions. He grieved over the way that Uzziah ended his legacy. He grieved over the loss of a friend that had ruled with unique leadership skills for 52 years. All of this was going on in his mind. And then he also had the, the questions of what would the new king be like, which would be on the minds of any thinking person or nation. It's transition. What's it going to be like now? So he's praying, and his mind is fixated on the loss of the old ruler, the incoming of the new ruler, and God completely blew him away by telling him, your mind is totally on the wrong thing. You are fixated with the man who's sitting on the throne in the capital city of Jerusalem. You need to be fixated on the God who's seated on the throne over heaven and earth. Because that's the God that Isaiah, up till this time, did not know. But on this day, Isaiah would see the true king. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What a magnificent picture. Empty throne, God on it, and his train fills all of church. The robe. In this day and age, kings were known by the degree of their power, by the by the nature of the clothes they wore, was there was there a robe white? Was it purple? Was there was it made of uh, mink? Was it made of wool? How large was it? So even though we don't really live in a world of kings anymore, we sort of can grasp this concept of dignity by one's um, robe, it, especially in the context of a wedding. We a groom stands at the at the altar and waits for the door to open and the entire church then turns around to see what does the 
What does the wedding gown look like? It, it takes over that day, whatever the bride is, is wearing. So we could sort of understand this. I remember Lisa and I have been married for 37 years, and we got, we got married on July 30th of 1983. And I remember that long process that girls go through of finding their wedding dress. And I remember the day she found it at J.B. White, and she was thrilled, ex- except for it was everything she wanted except for one little blemish at the train of the dress, uh, an overzealous night worker had run across it with an industrial vacuum cleaner, and there was wheel marks. So J.B. White said, we'll discount the dress to $150. You know, good luck on getting the tire marks out. And I remember that day at 3 in the afternoon on the 30th of July 1983, those doors opened, Lisa's on the left arm of her dad, and there she was, and I was thinking to myself, wow, they got the, they got the marks out. <laughs> and then she walks down the aisle, and the rest is history. Imagine this. Isaiah is watching this God wear this robe, and even if it were in the temple alone, The temple was 150 feet long and 90 feet wide, and this king's robe fills that space. But it was very likely the temple in heaven, and it filled all of heaven. It was just a scene of majesty, and Isaiah knew in that moment he had for up till this moment spent all of his life underestimating the size and value of God. But there were some creatures that day that did not underestimate the worth and dignity and power and size of God. Verse 2, above him, above the king, were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another in a song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I can't really tell you a lot about seraphs. I don't know a lot about seraphs because they're not mentioned a lot in the Bible. I will tell you that their Hebrew name means burning ones or on fire creatures. We know that God can turn angels into fire and he can turn angels into wind just like that. He can make them do and become anything he wants. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, but whatever these seraphs were, they weren't little chubby babies sitting on clouds. They were more like F-16 fighter planes that you will see flying over the Super Bowl tonight. This is what was circling the king of kings. And they had six wings. Two of them were covering. Two of them were for singing. So really the question that I have when I came to Isaiah 6 this week is, what is the relationship between what's going on with their wings and what's going on with their mouth? Out of their mouth comes a song and their wings are doing something else. And what I want to tell you is God invents things like this, creatures like this, non-human 
creatures in order for us to learn about who he is and how worthy he is and how awesome he is because we just don't get it. So he invents things like this so we can see the worth and dignity of God. So the first thing that these do is they, with two of their wings, they cover their faces. So remember, they're all there to teach us about God. So what do F-16 fighter pilots flying around in circles with their eyes closed teach us? Well, what they teach us is we are not worthy to be given the privilege of seeing infinite beauty the rest of eternity. And we should regard it as a privilege to see God. I want you to imagine if all of your life, let's say you wanted to see something like the Taj Mahal. And so you get on an airplane and you fly across the Atlantic Ocean and then across Europe and then finally into Asia. And 16 hours later, grueling flight, you arrive in India. Then you take a uh, good night's sleep in a hotel in New Delhi, and then you get up the next morning and board a train for another two-hour ride down to Agra. And unfortunately, you didn't read any of the tourist guide to know that the Taj Mahal is closed, which it is, every Monday. You're there to see the Taj, one of the seven wonders of the world architecturally, and you're going to miss it. And all of a sudden, a man comes out of a gate and says, I'll let you see. I'll let you in. And you can see the Taj Mahal. And all of a sudden, you are overwhelmed with a sense of, I should not be allowed to see such beauty. But by sheer grace, this beauty is before my eyes. This is what the seraphs teach us. To see infinite, all-satisfying beauty it's not your right, it's a privilege. And they know they don't have the privilege, or we don't have the privilege, and that's what they're trying to teach us. Then they also covered, not just their faces, but their feet. Why are you covering your feet? I mean, feet aren't bad, but feet are not beautiful. If you were at the beach, surrounded by 4,000 feet, you hardly notice them. But if you're in a five-star restaurant, everybody's wearing nice shoes, and somebody walks in with size 13 feet, no shoes, barefoot, they're noticeable and they're not really very pretty. You see, it all depends on the context of comparison. So the seraphs teach us that on their own, buzzing around the throne of God in their little F-16 fiery jets, pretty cool. But compared to God, they're nothing, so they cover themselves. So if you live a life where you just spend your life comparing yourself to other people, good for you. You got more money. You got a better body. You got a better house. But you, compared to God, are nothing. So the seraphs show us a realization of our creatureliness when compared to God, our smallness to say. Then Isaiah tells us with two of the other wings, they flew. Two cover their eyes, 
two other feet, the rest flying. Why are they flying? Why do, what do you do when you're happy? You move. You got a child or several? What do they do 24-7? They move. The greater your joy in life, probably the more you move. Put a child in the backseat of a car, four-hour ride, bless your heart, to the beach. Nightmare, 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 and all of a sudden, you release that little creature. <laughs> Went to the beach, feet in the sand, eyes on the ocean, atmosphere on his skin, and he's doing nothing that week but moving because of his joy. When you see God, you want to move for him. You want to praise him? You want to play guitar, piano, voice to sing? You want to serve him? You want to go teach children for him? You want to hold doors in the lobby for him? You want to give money for him? You want to get on a plane and fly to Africa for him, not knowing if the quarantine of this country will be on you, you could get back in. It doesn't matter. You want to move for Jesus when you see him. I just want to serve God. Worship is not like just this right thinking about God. It has to start there, but so much more. Worship is like, worship affects your body, your mouth, your values. Let's say it like this. If my worship does not affect my body, my mind, my thought, my values, my behavior, I am not worshiping. So the seraphs, they wanted to move for God. The last thing they wanted to do is start and participate in a little sin party in the presence of a holy God. That's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to move and glorify him with their beings. And the whole time that they were flying around the throne of God, they were singing. Look at their song. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Pretty short song. So that would make it into today's Christian music. Pray, good praise song because it's short and a great praise song because it's highly repetitive. You can remember this. Holy, let's say it again, holy and holy. Perfect praise song. And this is what they were singing the whole time they were flying. So what does it mean when they're, because they obviously put an emphasis on this. Holy, holy, holy. What does it mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but really you have to start with, with what the word really means. Separate, different, different category, not like anything else in the world, which is why God is worthy for you to come in on Sunday, find a seat, and just stare at him and listen to him and sing to him. There's no one like him. In fact, you're not going to go, you're not even going to be able to leave this room today. You cannot leave unless God permits it. Legs, brain, tails, lungs to work, heart to beat, feet to move. You can't even leave. Who else are you going to thank for that? Isaiah says nobody. 
Isaiah 40, to whom will you, will you, this is what God says to the world, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the who? The Holy One, the different category God. Nobody like God. Now, one of the ways that God lets us know that no one is like Him is through the glorious things that He does on earth. Look how, look how they say it. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So he's holy. Then you get, then so now you got a question. How can I see holiness? Like, I, what would I do today to try to show you what holiness is like? I'm like, I want to see holiness. Well, God says, you can see holiness as I display my holiness through my glory all over the earth. So God's glory on earth is his holiness gone public. Or as one man said, one writer, I love this, nature is the robe of God. Just a little glimpse. Nature is the robe of God. Snow-covered mountains, glistening oceans filled with leaping dolphins and breaching wells, mighty forests, flowery fields, rivers and lakes and water-filled clouds and thunderous lightning and a moon and a star and a hundred billion galaxies, just the robe of God. God is so magnificent, there is an entire force, troop, platoon of seraphs dedicated to just buzzing around heaven on fire, singing how great and holy he is. You want to know what's happening right now? In this worship service, you're listening, but right now, seraphs are flying around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy. Last night while you slept, seraphs, F-16, on fire, flying around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy. When you go home tonight, they've been doing this for billions of years because God is so magnificent. And we don't even understand that unless God would have invented these creatures to show us what kind of awe and majesty there is awaiting us in behind, just behind the curtain in heaven. It's amazing that these seraphs have been worshiping God like this for billions of years, yet if this service were to go much over an hour, we will have a conniption. What if I were to preach just for one hour solid? Super Bowl? Four hours easy. Biblical teaching, let's keep it at 35. The purpose of all God's glorious works is to tell us that there is no one holy like him. That's why he creates sunsets. Nobody could do that. That's why he creates hummingbirds and their little wings go 60 times a second. The reason that God takes one single cell the size of a tip of a pencil and turns it into a baby whose brain has a hundred trillion cells is to tell us there is no one like God. I just marvel how, how easy it is for us as a culture to take life created by this holy God and to just end it. It's so complex what he does.
You're creating a life. But part of God's holiness is not just his difference, but it's his difference related to purity. That's part of what it means for God to be holy. He doesn't sin. God doesn't sin because he can't. (laughs) That's what it means for him to be holy. He loves purity because he's infinitely pure. He loves morality because he's infinitely moral. And if there's anything, look at them. This is why they're singing. They're singing about the purity of God. And if there's anything that distinguishes God from man, surely it's this. God finds his greatest delight in purity. Man seeks to delight his soul through impurity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, all of us experience things in life. We like we write. We text people sometimes in life. And what we just texted, we felt was so important, maybe so profound. We follow it up with about four or five exclamation marks. Bam, 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 bam. Because, hey, what I just said is very important. Or if you, if you go to the store and you buy a greeting card, a Hallmark greeting card, and you, and you, you send it to somebody that you care about, and you show them that you really care about them because you underline, double underline, and triple underline certain words of the card that you were so non-creative you had to buy. (laughs) But it's all for emphasis. This holy, 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 this triumvirate of holiness is put in there because it's like a, a, a loudspeaker on a ship of a captain saying, now hear this. This is the most important aspect of God, is what this is saying in Isaiah 6. The most important attribute of God is His holiness. Never will you find in Scripture, these, will you find a triumvirate of something like this. And the F-16 fighter plane seraph angels were singing, Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. Merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord Almighty. Nope. Holy, holy, holy. Sinless, sinless, sinless is the Lord Almighty. God is more pure than you could ever imagine. Everything about him is pure. Everything about him opposes impurity. He has nothing to do with sin. Sin is the opposite of everything God is. It is the opposite of everything that Christ died for. What I love most about their singing is what happened when they sung, what happened to the church building where they were gathering. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook, and the whole place was filled with smoke. That would be a good worship service. Can you imagine our singing, God invading our singing in such a way that the building trembles? So Isaiah was understandably terrified at this moment. F-16 fighter plates, fighter planes on fire, singing holy, 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 surrounding this God. And he understands that the train of God, God's robe is so big it fills all of the earth. 
His robe fills all of the earth. And Isaiah has spent his entire life underestimating and undervaluing this God. And he reacts strongly. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, I want to let you know at this point in the sermon or up until this point of the sermon and proceeding, it is possible that you will feel a sense of terror as you begin to realize who you have been sinning in front of. When you feel that sense of terror, I do not want you to panic. Just stay where you are and let God teach you the rest of the story He has no intention of leaving you in a state of terror. You must get there to know him, but he does not want you to stay there unless you rebel against him. Decide to continue rebelling against him or run from him. When Isaiah says, woe to me, I am ruined, that means I am unraveling. I'm undone. I'm unglued. I'm coming apart at the seams. Just yesterday, I had my act together, or people thought I had my act together, and this one event, this one realization of who God is and how I've treated Him comes to my life, and there's no hope for me. My life's falling apart. This is what He feels like. When He says, woe to me, He could not use a stronger word of self-condemnation. Woe to me is... There is no hope for me. Frequently used word about God's judgment throughout Scripture. Micah 2, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. Do you see what Isaiah was feeling? Woe to me. Nahum 3, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah cries out, woe to me, I am ruined, he's basically saying to God, I should be dead. I've gone so far over the line. I've treated you with disrespect. I have loved my neighbor more than I have loved you. I've been more afraid of offending my neighbor than offending you, God. Far more concerned with what other people think about me than what you think about me. Woe to me, I am ruined. I have seen the king. This is not overzealous, this is normal. When a man sees God, when you see the holiness of God, your heart's broken over the horror of your heart. Your ego grieves that it ever boasted that you were good. Many people cannot relate to Isaiah's trauma because they've never looked at God. They've spent their life comparing themselves to each other. And this is what they do. They they look at that person 
You know, this political party compares itself to that political party. I'm not like that. This party or this person compared this man with to that coworker. That this woman says I'm a better wife than better mother than that. And every time you do that, you end up saying, you know, well, based on comparison, I'll give myself a B, B plus. If you're a Pharisee, A minus. Double Pharisee, A. Then all of a sudden, one day you compare yourself to God and you get an F. I have failed God. Prior to this day, Isaiah was filled with religious pride and all of that changed for him when all of his boasts were incinerated by one look at God. What exactly was the sin he was talking about? I am a man of unclean lips. Especially frightening for me is what he means. I traffic, this is what he's saying. I have... I'm a prophet of God who traffics in words that I don't mean. I sing things that I don't mean. I preach things that I don't mean. I come to church and hear things I don't apply. I'm a word specialist, is what he's saying. And it's not affected my heart, my life, my walk, my behavior. That's what he was saying. We profess to believe in a holy and glorious God, yet we live as if he were unholy and irrelevant. So Isaiah's thinking at this point, God should judge me. I should be dead. That was God's right, but it was not God's desire. Hear that? God's right. Not his desire. Look at this. I told you, hang on. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Amen goes right there. Ah, oh, such relief. How, how long does God want you to live in guilt? Just long enough to confess it and it's done. That's as long as it takes. He doesn't want you to experience guilt any longer than for you to realize this is what I've done against you. Then he's ready. To come and make you new. And please know it is no small thing for God to make you new. This is violent. These F 16 fighter pilot guys, they're sent to the altar, one of them is, to grab a burning coal with tongs. And I found that very interesting. These guys are composed of fire, yet the fire from the altar is so hot, they can't touch the coal. They have to grab it with tongs. This is fiercely violent, what's going on here. So they grab, they grab the coal. He grabs the coal, and he comes over. And this is the most beautiful part of the story. 
and touches, Isaiah had confessed, you know, I got a hypocritical mouth. And so God sends the fighter pilot, seraph guy, to put the coal on Isaiah's lips and doesn't burn his lips. Now that's mercy. Destroys the sin without destroying the sinner. My God. That is the grace of God. Violent reaction against the sin, nothing but love for the sinner. And let's be clear, Isaiah was not cleansed by a piece of charcoal from the grill. You can't have a God who is so holy, 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 and His holy robe fills all of earth with mountains and seas, and everything about Him opposes sin, and all of a sudden, some created creature called a seraph takes a burning coal and puts it on a man's sin, that is not going to make it okay for God to say, okay, all the world's sin is done for, cleansed because of a piece of charcoal. Nope. The reason that this thing had any power is where the burning coal came from. It came from an altar. For thousands of years, millions of, sacri- of animals were brought to this altar. Sheep, throats slashed, blood poured out on that altar. And even all, that's all the Old Testament is. One sacrifice after another of sheep and bulls and goats on this altar And sin was so much stronger than all the millions of sacrifices. There still had to be another blood sacrifice on that altar. Because the lambs and the bulls, the goats could not. So there had to be another sacrifice. Isaiah later talks about that next sacrifice. Not a lamb, but a man. Isaiah 53, 5 an Old Testament look into the New Testament Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his bleeding, we're healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to that sacrifice and was slaughtered on the cross. You say, how do I get that? All of that is just Old Testament pictures where it's made very clear in the New Testament. Colossians 1, God was pleased and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things by making peace between God and man through his blood shed on the cross. This is why this coal has power. It came from the altar of Calvary's cross. Not burning coal, dripping blood is what cured Isaiah. 
Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. Can you believe that? We were just thinking about a holy, holy God, Isaiah 6. And Isaiah says, I'm undone. I'm, I'm coming unraveled. I need to die. I should die. I have the sentence of death upon me. That there's no one like this God, and now I'm like this God? I'm holy. Because of the blood, the body of Christ, I'm holy in his sight, without blemish. How holy am I? I am free from all accusation. Wow. I had a friend call me this week. Man, his conscience is so tender. You know what he called me to confess? That the night before, he had looked at something, while on his computer, he had looked at something inappropriate on Facebook. Facebook. I mean, I'm not on Facebook a whole bunch, but I just see you guys posting pictures of plants that you put in the ground or trees you've knocked down or Christmas ornaments or cookies you made. What did he find? I don't know what he found, but he knew this. It was unholy, and God watched him watch it. Think about what God's watched this week on the campuses of this, in this city. Students, what they've looked at, God watched them watch it. And think about the plots that people have not just thought about in their head, but they actually did it with their body. They thought about the sin and then they did it. Came out of their mouth or out of their body. God watched them do it, heard them say it. They were sitting on the robe of God when they were sinning. What do you say to somebody who comes into your office and said, this is what I did? This happens, this is by God's grace and my greatest privilege. This is my life. People come in. I will tell people when I counsel them, you don't have to tell me this, but you're not going to be free until you do. But it might be somebody else. It's not like I'm begging to hear, but I am begging to, be, to help you get it out. As all, are all the pastors that are counselors on the staff and elders, not just me. But. So what do you do when somebody tells you, I did that sin? There is nothing I could tell my friend this week. There's nothing I can tell you today except Jesus. Blood. Cross. Tomb. 
resurrection. Divine wrath poured out on a perfect son so that with one confession of your lips, your guilt has been atoned for and it's removed. That's all I can say. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus removes it all. Jesus removes it all. I'm going to read a hymn. This is what I sent to my friend this week. He calls, man, I feel guilty. I got nothing for him except Jesus. What I'm going to do, I'm going to talk him out of his guilt. There is a fountain. That's why I, I texted him. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains free from all accusation. Lose all your stains. And the next verse is just as good because this is your strategy not just the day you get saved, but until your last breath on earth, that blood. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. You might be tired of sinning, but God is not tired of forgiving. Today, as the band comes, they could not have chosen a more beautiful song to help us capstone this message. But you could really mess this thing up major if you do not use that song to confess your sin to Christ. Stop pouting, stop doubting, stop running, stop doing anything except saying, I believe you shed your blood for me, Jesus. And I receive your forgiveness. You got to say that. Say it during the first song. Tell one of us at the end of the service. There are tons of us around that want to hear you, your experience with God today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you're holy, 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 pure, pure, pure. We want to judge that's impartial. We want a courtroom where nobody can buy you out. We want the all-seeing judge of history to not let anything go unpunished. All the crimes, all the victims that have been hurt. We want there to be a final judgment. We want there to be a divine resolution. We want sin cleansed from all the earth. All the corruption addressed and cleansed from D.C. and state capitals and in industry and in education. Lord, all the filthy speech and all the mockers, we want it cleansed. Lord, all the violence done to the innocent. Lord, all of the Holocaust throughout history, we want there to be a payday. We do. We crave for there to be judgment. But we're frightened, God, if that judgment were going to come upon us. 
If we had to pay for our sins, the words from our mouth, the thoughts in our brain, the lust that pour out of our heart through our body, Lord, the hatred, the racism, the animosity, the refusal to reconcile. Lord, if we had to pay for that, what a dreadful day it would be when we die. But oh, Jesus, there has been an answer from the altar of God, not a burning coal, not an angel with tongs, but a man from heaven who draped himself in human skin, who lived a perfect life so that he could go to the altar of the cross and say, God, lay upon my body all of the wrath for humanity's rebellion. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the wounds in your side, the nails in your hands. Thank you for staying on the cross until the final sin of your redeemed was cleansed. Oh, Jesus, today, today, Jesus, come. Come, Jesus. Persuade somebody to open their life and to be cleansed and free from all accusation and all the past and even all the sins of the future. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, the King. Amen.